Bay Gateway family, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We are in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And while you're looking there, uh, for the sake of our guests, fundamentally we have been looking at one question, and the question is this. If you have experienced the grace of God in your life, then how then shall we live? If we've experienced God's transformative power in our life, if he has changed our hearts from the inside out, then then how ought we live in obedience and in reflection to what Jesus has done for us? And that's the question that we're going to be looking at again, because here's why this matters today. Today, we're going to be looking at what what is perhaps the most well-known passage of Scripture in the entire Old Testament, which is the law the Ten Commandments. And even though it's also written in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the more comprehensive of the two. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, what is the law? Why does it matter? And why does it matter for us still today, many, many years removed from when God originally shared this with the people of Israel? Why does it matter for us today? So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. You got it? Let's take a look at this together. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now just stop right there for a second. One of the things that I was reflecting on this past week with uh, Pastor Adam, Pastor Marcel, my wife Julie, I find it so fascinating that every single time the law is brought up in scripture, it is always within the context of first telling us the deliverance story in Egypt. And when I was growing up, I often thought to myself, like, why does that matter? You always hear, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Why, Why does that matter for us? But then we begin to see that this is the story of salvation and deliverance, not just for Israel, but for us today as well. And so what we see here is God's salvation preceding his instruction for how we ought to live. And so he continues with his law, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall now not bow down to them or worship them. What did we learn about idols just this past week? Idols are good things that we make God things and on account of that they become terrible things. And so all the things that are listed here that we need to avoid as idolatry are things that God has intrinsically created as good. But when we make them ultimate, they become despicable things. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That word jealous, we learned just this past week that God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. That's why he has covenanted himself to us. That's why he gives us his law. Even in the midst of our disobedience, he doesn't give up on us. He pursues us relentlessly. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that it may go well and you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. See those words, so that it may go well with you? I want to encourage you, if you treat your Bible as a live textbook the same way I do, just underline that. We're going to return to that in just a little bit. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or their land, their male or female servant, their ox or their donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this is the law. But one of the questions that I I think is really important for us to ask right at the beginning of this is what is its purpose? What is the law seeking to do? Because I believe Even today, in the church today, there are two views that are still alive and well that we need to die to. And if we're not careful, we might actually have these views popping up in our faith life as well. The first one is that we treat the law as some arbitrary list of rules and regulations and restrictions and God just kind of throws them on us in order to find out who is going to be obedient to him. And so it's kind of a way to determine who's going to be in and who's going to be out. Because we all know God grades on a curve and if you are sharper than the average tool in the shed, then you can earn your way to salvation. You can earn your way to heaven. And the other ones who don't follow God's law don't. And so it's a measuring stick. But another way we might treat the law, especially for those of us who are Christians today, we might see it as some old antiquated rule book that we no longer have to follow because Jesus has already conquered the effects of sin and death in our life and so we know that the rules that God used to give us but now everything's okay. We almost treat it as a license to sin. Paul talks about that in Romans. And so those are two myths that we have to die to simultaneously in order to get a better picture of what the law does for us today. And so here's the first question I want us to ask. What is the law? And I want to give you two responses. The first one is this. The law is not a a list of arbitrary rules, but it is a reflection of the nature of God and the nature of us. For those of you who uh, like to go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Home Hardware and you, know, you purchase something there, typically it will come with a user's manual, right? So let's say you buy a lawnmower, you bring it home, and you start reading through the user's manual. What, what is the purpose of that? It's meant to help us understand the way in which the engineers built your lawnmower so that you can use it in a way that doesn't destroy it. You can use it in a way that helps it function best for its purpose. And in the same way, that is how the law works for us to do, to do as well today. But it's actually even more than that. Because with the image of a lawnmower, we know that that was simply made by an engineer, not in their own image, but using the tools and the resources that God has placed upon the good earth. But when we look at the law, 
we see that it is ultimately a reflection of who God is. That is to say, when we hear God's commands, you shall not lie or you shall not steal. That is to say that the God we serve is a God of integrity and a God of truth. And that is outlining for us who God is in his essence. And because God made us in his image, it also outlines who we are in our essence as well. So let me just give you an example of how this plays out on a societal level, just by looking at one of the Ten Commands and seeing just how important these ultimately are. So one of the commands that I've already recited for you is you shall not lie. Now, let me ask you a question. Why are we tempted to lie? Why, why do we even think about doing that? Typically, it's one of two reasons, right? The first reason you want to lie is because if you don't, bad choices might catch up to you. Right? So typically we lie because we're trying to avoid past lies that we have made. Kind of like the Pinocchio effect, right? With each passing lie comes a temptation in order for us to try and cover our tracks. So we lie and we lie and we lie again. But another reason we might lie is in order to get ahead. So let's say uh, if you're ever tempted to lie or cheat on a test, why would you do that? Because you know in your mind, possibly I could get a better grade, which means I could get greater scholarships, which means I could possibly get into a better academic institution, which would put me ahead in my career moving down the, the road. Man, there's a whole lot of benefits there if I just choose to lie. Or you might choose to lie on your taxes. And what are you doing that for? You say, well, then, I, then I'm able to get ahead financially. I might be able to pay off the mortgage a little bit faster. I might be able to put a little bit more money in my pocket. There's plenty of reasons why you might be tempted to lie in order to try and get ahead. So oftentimes, one of the reasons why we lie is either to try and safeguard ourselves from our past or in order to get ahead in the future. And that's one of the reasons why we do that. In order to get ahead or to not fall behind. And so if it's the case that we are simply a cosmic accident of trillions upon trillions of years of, of cosmic atoms being thrown together and then we just suddenly appeared, then why should I have any interest whatsoever in following any rules from the Bible or even from our Canadian institutions, from the law of the land? Why should I listen to any of this? Why should I be interested in whether I lie or I tell the truth? And here's what I find so interesting. In every single country all around the world, whether it is a highly influenced by religions or you might call it a, a more quote-unquote secular country, why do they spend millions, even billions of dollars on seeking to find the truth? Let me give you a list of occupations. And just the, on the front end, I want to ask you, what do all of these occupations have in common? So let me just list them off for you. A whole slew of them. Judges, juries, reporters, uh, newspapers, columnists, lawyers, litigators, referees, assessors, real estate agents, accountants, inspectors, police officers, the list could go on. What do they all have in common? What do all these occupations try to do? Their objective is to inspect the truth, to find the truth, and to reveal the truth. Ultimately, that's their job. All of these things that we find all around us, they're all seeking to find the truth because we know that when we can't find the truth, everything begins to break down. 
For those of you who are a little bit older, let me give an example of what you possibly even remember or your parents told you about, and that is the breakdown of the Soviet Union. What happened in the Soviet Union? It wasn't external forces. What ultimately caused the demise of an entire nation is that they collapsed from within because they could not discover what was true from what was false. And so what that meant is judges and juries and police officers and real estate agents and doctors and nurses and even weather reporters, they couldn't trust them. They couldn't trust anything. And on account of that, the whole society began to crumble and fall apart. You couldn't even go to a doctor's office and there you saw a big plaque on the wall, Yale University, and you wouldn't trust it. You wouldn't trust the, the integrity of the persons that you were talking to. And on account of that, an entire nation, a whole society crumbled to the ground. And I'm not trying to give any uh, doomsday prophecy, but I had similar feelings when I was watching the U.S. election. Similar things can happen. Even the most powerful nation the world has ever seen, one of the, the greatest instigators of a breakdown of a nation can simply be not knowing the truth from what is false. The same can be happening here within our nation in Canada as well. And so you might say, Justin, what's your point? Well, my point is this. On account of just this one law of God, just this one law, you shall not lie, everything can break down. Why? Because the law, you shall not lie, is not simply some arbitrary rule. It is ultimately pointing to our essence and who we are as human beings. Think again about that lawnmower. If you decide to, rather than put gasoline in the lawnmower, you put ketchup in there, what happens? It breaks down. It becomes destroyed, no longer usable. And in the same way, when we break God's law, we're not just breaking rules. We are becoming less human. Less of what we've been made to be, not just to do. And societies can become destroyed on account of it. And so that's the first point. The law is not just some arbitrary rule that we need to follow. It's a reflection of our essence, the way that we've been made, the way that we function best. And that leads to the second point when we ask what is the law. It is not an independent list of rules. And, and I had a really hard time thinking about how to say this, but the way I put it is it is an interdependent mirror. An interdependent mirror. Another way of saying that is you might picture a puzzle, right, which has 10 pieces. If you only have one of the 10 pieces, you might still think to yourself, what does this picture represent? But when you put them all together and then you look back, finally do you see the whole image and the way that it is made. And so only together do they outline the picture of how we've been made in God's image. You know, there's a, a passage of scripture that has eluded many of us for many years, uh, myself as well, and is James chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, James chapter 2 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. All of it. You might say, Really? Like, that's kind of confusing. Does that mean, Justin, that uh, if it says, you shall not lie and I lie, that I'm guilty of breaking all Ten Commandments? Really? 
See, when, when I was growing up, I often thought to myself, oh, the consequence is the same. Like, for instance, if you ever commit murder or conspiracy to commit fraud uh, or, you know, you rob a bank, then the outcome is the same. You go to jail, right? Is that what James is saying? No. No. He's saying exactly what he says. If you break one law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. All of them. Now, how can that be? How is that possibly the case? Well, let me give you an example again. The same one that we used for the last one, we'll use it again here. You shall not lie, which is the ninth commandment. So what the Bible is telling us is if we lie, if we break the ninth commandment, then it also means that we're guilty of breaking the tenth, which is you shall not covet. We're also guilty of breaking the first, you shall have no other gods before me, and the second, you shall have no other idols. Why? Why? Because the only reason why we may be tempted to lie is because something deeper underneath the surface is already beginning to happen. So that's the first question that I asked you earlier. Why are you tempted to lie? Why would you even do that? Well, it's ultimately because there has something in your life that you have thought as the ultimate thing. If I could just have this one thing in my life, then everything would be okay. Everything would be better. And so on account of that, you have started making a good thing, a God thing, an ultimate thing, and on account of that, it has become a terrible thing. You've broken the first and the second commandment. You have placed an idol in your heart that is so superior to God that you're willing to do anything in order to keep it. You know, Julie and I, we, we really enjoy watching documentaries on Netflix, and one of the things that always surprises me is even when we watch more serious documentaries about people who have committed murder or fraud or countless times they've lied over the course of decades in order to cover their tracks, one of the things that they often say is, I'm surprised by my own actions. I can't believe I did it. They're surprised by themselves. But here's the thing, they, they have created an ultimate thing an idol in their life, and they have done everything in their power in order to protect it. So that is to say, if you lie, that is just the fruit of something deeper. It's just the byproduct of a God that you have placed in your heart that you want to safeguard and to preserve whatever the cost. And so when you break one law, you've broken all ten in your heart. In your heart. The the act of breaking one law means in your heart you've already broken all ten. Let me give you one example for those of you who love uh, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I came across this just a couple of weeks ago where a reporter reached out to J.R. Tolkien and asked him, what's up with Sauron and the One Ring? Right? Why was it that he placed all of his power in a ring? And he said that that was my way of describing how coveting destroys our life and how the entire law of God fits together. He said, whenever Sauron had that one ring on his finger, He was the most powerful being in all of Middle-earth. He was able to destroy all of his foes, and he almost rose to power to rule all of Middle-earth. But once his finger was cut off and the ring fell off from his hand, he lost that power. He didn't die because the ring was still alive. And he did everything in his power in order to get it back because that's what brought him fulfillment. That's what brought him joy. That's what brought him contentment. And so he would do whatever it takes in order to get it back. 
And if you know Lord of the Rings, you know how the story ends. What happens when the one ring is placed in the fire? And I get that I'm using my wedding ring for this, so that's not the analogy, by the way. If what happens when that one ring was placed in the fire and dies? Sauron dies too. Why? Because he has placed himself, his essence, his personhood, his identity into that one ring. Don't we do the same thing? Isn't it the case that every single one of us wants success? We want to find love. We want to find joy and fulfillment in our life. But here's the thing. If we try to find fulfillment in anything other than God, it will ultimately destroy us. It will destroy us. And see, God knows that on the front end. That's why we can say the law is not a list of arbitrary rules. It is a desperate plea from God to say, don't you see, I made you in a certain way. And in that way, you function best. And if you do these things, then it will ultimately lead to your destruction. And so another way of saying this is when we break the law of God, we're not just breaking some arbitrary rule, we're breaking God's heart. And when we understand this principle, we start to see it everywhere. In fact, I often think of Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says this. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or he says something similar in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 when he says this. You've heard it said you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you covet, then you've already committed theft. If you lust, you've already committed adultery. And if you harbor bitterness in your heart, then you've already committed murder. Because it has more to do with what's happening with the ultimate desires of your heart than the actual fruit of those things popping out when we finally commit the crime when we finally commit the action itself. So if we're walking in perfect harmony with God, if God is at the core, the center of our hearts, then we won't be tempted to break any of these laws. Let me just walk through them. If we love God with our whole hearts, that's the first commandment, then we will avoid idolatry. That's the second commandment. We'll walk with God in fear and reverence. That's the third commandment. We won't uh, be tempted to become slaves to our work and to not break the Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. We won't use sex as a way to find fulfillment and satisfaction. The seventh commandment. We won't look at other things that we don't have and want to take them from others or lie in order to get them or to covet those things that we don't have. The seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment and tenth commandment. See, all of these things are intricately connected. They all flow from the same river. We can't just pick and choose the ones that we like best. And that leads to our next point. If your Bibles are open, I want you to look at verse 24. Verse 24 says this. And you said, this is the response of the people of Israel upon hearing the law of God. The Lord our God has shown us glory and his majesty We've heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. They're elated. But, <laughs> I think this would be a great dissertation for a topic. The word but in the Bible. Always something is about to come. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us. 
And we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and lived and survived? Isn't this fascinating? So in the context of hearing the law of God, instantly Israel has two responses. Same thing happened last week. Same thing happened the week prior. Instantly, two responses from the people of Israel. The first response is, the Lord has shown us glory and majesty. They are filled with exuberation and excitement. But right on the heels of that, the great fire will consume us. We'll die if we hear the voice of the Lord any longer. Dread. Absolute dread. What is this pointing to? Well, just like last week, we learned that the fire of God is both beautiful and terrible. It gives us warmth, but it also destroys. It is wonderful, but we don't want it anymore. We can't live with it. We can't live without it. That's the great conundrum of the law. So what's the problem with the law? All of this is leading to this one point. The great problem of the law is this. It condemns us. It condemns us. Doesn't it? See, here's the problem with the law. The problem that that Israel felt is this. On the one hand, the law of God is, I suppose you could say, self-revealing. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the law of God is written upon all of our hearts. What is he saying? He's saying that all of us know it without even reading it. it. It's the reason why every major religion in the world, pretty much, all has their virtual equivalent of the law, the Ten Commandments. Pretty much unanimous across the board. Why? I thought we were the only ones who adopted these principles. It's because it's self-revealing. Every single person kind of says, yeah, that makes sense. I I think that, that makes perfect sense as to why we should follow these types of laws. Even the most atheistic of communities who do not believe in the law of God would say it is in the best interest of society to condemn murder and theft. Right? They would say that. And so it is self-revealing. These principles are proven to help societies flourish. They're practically common sense. For those of you who are parents, uh, perhaps you remember a time in which your, your children were little toddlers. Perhaps they couldn't even talk yet. And let's just say they, they steal something, like a cookie from a cookie jar. And you know that they stole it. And you go up to your son or your daughter and you say, did you steal something from the cookie jar? And then you see their face filled with dread. And then they do this. And you just know uh, from their face, it is more evident than if their nose came out six inches. You know that they lied. And yet you see the shame and the dread on their face. Why? Because they know. They know. (laughs) Even before they can talk, they know. It's self-revealing. And so the law serves as a mirror the quintessential proof that you and I do not follow it perfectly. And so it condemns us. And that's what Israel says. Israel says, the law, it's beautiful, it's majestic. But Israel also says, we'll die if we hear the voice of the Lord any longer. We want to flee from his presence. Otherwise, we will die. I think the best example of this that I find in Scripture is in Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul, he kind of gives us a bit of an autobiographical note. And he says, there was a time in my life before I knew Jesus that every time I thought about the law, it brought me glee. It brought me great joy and happiness. Why? Because I felt as though I was the chief of Pharisees. 
He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a zealot to the law. As to the Pharisaic law, I was perfect. He had such great joy and delight whenever he thought about it because he knew in comparison to others, he was in an elite class. And yet, there came a time on the road to Damascus when Jesus caught up with Saul, turned Paul on the road, and Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he came to know Jesus and it says that scales fell from his eyes and his eyes were opened and suddenly he saw the law for what it truly is. But what happened in that moment? He was filled with dread because it was the first time where he finally knew that he could not save himself. That's why he says what he says in Romans chapter 3.23 when he says these words. He says, For all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 29 of your Bible. Deuteronomy 5.29, it says this. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them, there it is again, and their children forever. See that word forever? Circle it, highlight it, or underline it so that it might go well with them and their children forever. What's happening here? It's almost as though God is being overcome with emotion in this moment. And by the way, the word fear is not the English equivalent to our word fear, whereas fear is to be afraid. The concept of fear in the Hebrew language is to experience such awe and wonder at the beauty and the majesty of something, to be enraptured by something, like as you're listening to a beautiful piece of music or you're looking at a beautiful piece of artwork, you are totally overcome by it. And that's what God is saying here, that my people would want to obey me out of love. I don't want people to obey me because I'm God. I want them to obey me because I'm their God. That's what he's saying. I want them to love me. Do you remember uh, that old band, Cheap Trick? Remember that? Maybe for those of you who are a little bit older. My dad was a child of the 70s, so I know a lot of that music. And what's that one, uh, number one hit song that they used to sing? I want you to want me. Remember that? or I need you to need me, or I love you to love me. That is (laughs) the Hebrew equivalent of what God is saying here. He's saying, I love you to love me. I want you to have a relationship with me. And once you understand this principle, you start seeing it everywhere. Look at your Bibles. There is a pronoun that is used constant times in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and actually throughout the Old Testament, but especially in Deuteronomy 5, and it is the word your. Do you see it there? Let me show you a couple of the times. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God. Verse 9, the Lord your God. Verse 11, your God. Verse 12, your God. Verse 14, the Lord your God. Verse 15, your God. Verse 16, twice, your God, your God. You see it everywhere, over and over and over and over again. Why? Well, here's why. Most of you know that my wife's name is Julie, right? But even if I was talking to a complete stranger and I said, my Julie, instantly they would know that I was talking about someone who is very close to me, either my wife, maybe my mom, maybe my daughter, or uh, maybe a sister, 
but someone incredibly close who I have an intimate personal relationship with. And then God comes along and he tells the people of Israel, that is what I want to have with you. I want to be your God. And I want you to say, the Lord is my God. My God. And so I don't want you just to obey because I'm God. I want you to obey because I'm your God. Because I love you desperately. And I want you back. But once again, the law condemns us. We've chosen rebellion. And because of that, a great chasm has emerged between us and God. And so the last question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is the only solution? And there's actually two. One of these two. Either perfect obedience or a perfect redeemer. Perfect obedience or a perfect redeemer. And that's again what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 when he sees that the law doesn't affirm him, it condemns him. He's not perfectly obedient. And for those of you who are working through our Bible reading plan, uh, we are in the middle of Deuteronomy right now, have you noticed the number of sacrifices that had to be made in the Old Testament? You can't go buy a chapter without like at least a dozen animals being sacrificed on an altar. But here's the thing that I find so remarkable. Time and time and time again, even after thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals being slaughtered as a propitiation for their sin, meaning a substitute to appease the wrath of God on account of their sin, to use a real estate term, it did nothing to address the principle. It only addressed the interest. And so because of that, no matter how many sacrifices they made, the law still condemned them. They were still separated from God. And so here's the eventual outcome. Revelation chapter 5 says this. This is the outcome. This is John. He receives a vision of what will happen in glory. He says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And so I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. See, Deuteronomy 5, Romans 7, Revelation 5, and countless other passages of Scripture, they all tell us exactly the same thing. We can't save ourselves. So if you're taking notes this morning, I gave you two responses, right? Perfect obedience or a perfect redeemer. Scratch out perfect obedience. It's not an option to us because we've learned that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Centuries later, a man comes to Jerusalem and like John, he too begins to weep over Jerusalem. And he says these words. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh that you would know the things that pertain to your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And of course, this is Jesus. And a week later, he goes to the cross. A week later, he stretches out his arms. He who knew no sin becomes sin. But here's the thing that I want us to reflect on just for a moment. While he's on the cross, he cries out, does he not? And I find it so remarkable the way that Jesus cried out. He doesn't say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? What does he say? My God. 
my God, why have you forsaken me? That's covenantal language. Finally, someone comes along who, after God says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people, there is someone who is so perfectly obedient that he can reciprocate and he can say, my God, I am yours and you are mine. Perfect in every single way. And we see all the countless times when God says, I want to be your God, your God, your God, your God, your God. Finally, Jesus says, my God. So here's what it means for us, for you, and for me. When Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, it means that he fulfilled the law in total perfection. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He followed the law perfectly. But not only that, he willingly and suffered for you and for me. And that's why Revelation 5 continues this way. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that being God the Father. And then it says, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and worshipped. And they sang a new song, saying these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. What's that song that we sing from 2 Corinthians? He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. The whole earth trembled. The veil was torn. Love so amazing. This means that not only are our sins put on God, on Jesus Christ, and he's given what we deserve. But it also means that Jesus Christ's perfection, his righteousness, is placed upon us. So that every single time God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And so we can ask ourselves one final question, just one more. What is the only response? What is the only appropriate response that we can have? Grateful obedience. Grateful obedience. It means we no longer have to be afraid. Like in Deuteronomy 5 with the people of Israel, they're trembling before God saying, be far from us, otherwise you will destroy us on account of our disobedience. The curse of the law has been abolished. We no longer need to be afraid. But the second thing that it also does is it makes sure that we don't treat the law in a way to benefit me. Do you remember how I started? There's oftentimes two pitfalls when it comes to the law, and I want to relay them one more time, and I want to express to you, I want to plead with you that we need to flee from both of these. The first is to treat the law as a measuring stick, a way to justify yourself and to condemn others. Oftentimes, those of us who are more religious, who have been following God for a long time, we're tempted to do these things. 
Even the Apostle Paul says that. He says, don't forget where you came from. Those of you who've been following Jesus a long time, the unique danger, spiritually speaking, for you is to start justifying yourself and condemning others. But if you have a perfect picture of the cross, knowing that the only options you have are perfect obedience, which you are not, or a perfect redeemer, which we all have received, you will not be tempted to justify yourself by the law. But then there's a second pitfall we need to be aware of on the other side. For those of us who have been following Jesus, we might say, wow, Jesus has paid for the cost of the law. I am set free. I can now treat Jesus Christ's redemption as a license to sin. And we would never do that either because we know that in obedience to the law, we truly flourish. We get that vision like in Genesis chapter 2, just before the curse, that in the cool of the day, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that when we follow the law, we become more human. And when we become more human, we can walk with God. And it is our earnest desire to walk with him. And so we flee from evil in our life. And we don't treat the gospel as a license to sin any longer. See, only someone who has a perfect vision of the lamb who was slain will avoid these pitfalls in their life. See, today we witnessed nine men and women who have stepped forward in faith and have publicly given their yes to Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. What a beautiful thing. And it's not lost on me that we are reading a book that has been commended to the next generation to inspire the next generation of persons to step forward in faith and to say, God is Lord, Lord of me and Lord of all. And once again, we have a perfect vision this morning of young people who are leading and inspiring us to be exactly the same way. Nine people who are recognizing that there's only one thing that can change your heart, not the law, the lamb. Only the lamb. And maybe you today, you're asking yourself that question. Justin, how can I throw off the idols in my life? How can I make Jesus Christ the ultimate love of my heart? How can I flee from all other idols? You need a vision of the lamb who was slain. You need to, just like John, be able to see what Jesus did in Revelation chapter 5 when he broke the seals and opened the scroll so that you and I could be set free. That is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for us. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for what it does, how it inspires us to walk with you, to truly become human, to know you better, to know ourselves better. But we also know, Lord, that the law all by itself, it does nothing other than condemn us because we cannot measure up to it. We ask, Lord, that that would truly grieve our hearts, that it would break our hearts. Like Paul in Romans 7, like John in Revelation 5, that we would be grieved, that we would weep and mourn and wail because we cannot save ourselves. But in doing so, upon humbling our hearts, we would get a vision of Jesus, the slain lamb for us, so that we could be set free. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us that vision anew today 
that you would truly give us new hearts, take out our heart of stone, and in its place, give us a heart of flesh. Thank you for the perfect lamb, Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.